Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly biotechnology podcast that's not just about biotechnology. Providing information to help you change hearts and minds. Moving innovations to application with communication. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things it can do for people and a planet. And today we're going to talk about the new book called Seeds of Science. And we're lucky to have the author with us today, Mark Linus. Hi, Mark. Hi there, Kevin. Yeah, so I know it's early and we're actually recording this on the launch date for this particular uh, book, but still it's been out and people have been discussing. And what I'd really like to focus on are what are some of the provocative punchlines that would really encourage our listenership to start to explore it more and really understand your experience and your point of view, because I think it's really unique. So uh, thank you very much for being with us today. Uh, Sure thing. Um uh, well, I mean, for me, the whole experience has been somewhat cathartic, um, as you might imagine. It was a long time ago that I was a sort of full-blown anti-GMO activist. I mean, I was in my very early 20s, so I look back on, on my younger self as sort of, so, so, somewhat naive, as, as you are when you're young in many cases. And um, But, uh, you know, it was, a, it was also quite a life-changing experience. I mean, it was the closest I ever came to really feeling like I've helped change the world to some extent. Um, even if looking back, um, it wasn't changing it in a positive direction. But we did, you know, we decontaminated all of the GM crop sites that there were in the UK at the time in the mid 90s, mid to late 90s, um, more or less stopped the, the whole direction of scientific research and innovation on genetic engineering. So all of the other food crops, you know, there's no GMO wheat, there's no um, barely any potato, um, there's no GMO rice, basically, and, and all of that. I think because there were so many products ready to go, more or less, that that, that really came down to this whole movement, which um, I was involved in the uh, the early stages of. And back then, you really felt you were doing the right thing, right? I mean, you and your friends were, were as you say, saving the world. Yeah, I mean, everyone everyone does, you know, that those that you don't make that kind of commitment um, lightly. And it was a very strong moral um, commitment that uh, that I had and that we all had and that I think most anti-GM activists to this day still have. Um, there's a lot of 
it's always, you know, you, you're always when you're on the other side from somebody, you want to say they're motivated by money or they're motivated by greed or, you know, ascribe them some ill intent. But I think for the most part, um, anti-GMO people are, are doing what they're doing because they believe it's the right thing to do. Um, certainly that was the case um, back, back when I was involved in the movement. <laughs> Um, it's, you know, no one, no one was in it for the money. There wasn't any money. We were just uh, grassroots activists. But, um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the issue, of course, really is whether it was the right thing to do. And um, obviously, I've concluded that it was not. Um, but there's that, you know, what, what the process was in terms of my own change of mind and change of heart and, you know, how how that sort of intersects with science and, and values and stuff like that is, is the story I tried to tell in the book. And and that really is a huge part of your story is that process of changing your mind and maybe having the courage to change your mind. And I think it ties in with what you were just discussing, that when you're on the side of anti-GMO or against technology or against this, this concept, that a lot of people aren't necessarily – really against a technology it's more the purveyors of that technology and the major folks who profit from it and so how did how did that play into your story and then how hard was that to change your mind because were you actually feeling like you might be supporting these other efforts that you fundamentally may oppose well to go back to the first point of your question whether it's the purveyors of the technology or the technology itself actually i, I disagree with you I think there was inherent aspects of the technology itself which meant that we opposed it. And it wouldn't really have mattered. And it, in fact, it hasn't mattered if it's being done by you know, a village cooperative or, or a big multinational company. If it's done by a big multinational agrochemical company, then sure, it's easier to demonize and to oppose. And you've got more reasons for doing so, potentially. But um, we, we were against the whole march of sort of human intrusion into life itself which is re represented or we felt was represented by genetic engineering you know the the increase in in human power and agency over the natural environment um uh, which is represented by directly being able to change change genes and alter genomes so i think you need to get that point um partly there's the sort of the very basic yuck factor which you can see coming out in all of the various myths about i don't know scorpion genes in strawberries or whatever it happens to be but th those are playing off on a more intuitive uh, moral revulsion that um so many people have about this idea of crossing species barrier about moving genes and and more basically about you know tampering with nature uh, you, you'll see a lot of the objections are you know ideas about yes but you know humans have got technology wrong in the past and people will cite uh, you know failures like thalidomide and um you know you know and ddt things like that um as a reason for you know as a reason for not doing something or a reason to oppose an innovation but that's not you know they're not opposing it because things have gone wrong in the past there's something about that technology which they feel revolted by and which they have a moral objection to and i think i think it is important to to get that point that's that's a fair point. So how did how were you able to overcome that? And and what was it that about the evidence that swayed you to revise your thinking on the topic? Well, it sort of comes down to a kind of cost benefit, really. I haven't completely overcome it. I mean, in an odd sort of way, I don't think you you can entirely shake off these things. I mean, the scientists in me would not have a problem with eating scorpion genes in a strawberry because, you know, it's just, just, a, just a few base pairs of DNA. I mean, who cares, right? But the, it's difficult to, to shake off the moral uh, revulsion. Um, I mean, there's, there's, lot, there's different ways, actually, interestingly, how this is, uh, this is played out. You know, if they, 
uh, if you, there's experiments that have been done, you know, saying, right, I've, I've, I've got a cockroach and it's completely sterile and I'm juicing it and I think there's some orange juice. Would you, would you have that? You know, people just go, no, no way. Or even like uh, chocolate, which is shaped like a, you know, dog turd. <laughs> you know, it's chocolate, but you still don't really want to eat it, you know? So I think, I think this stuff, this kind of stuff, you can't, you can't let go of. Um, and on, on a more serious level, I'm not, I'm not in favor of um, genetically engineering things willy nilly. Uh, and I make that point in the book. Um, I'm le- a lot less keen on on genetic engineering natural species. I'm not t- particularly bothered about our cultivars. You know, the, all of the various human, well, crop plants that you find in farmers' fields, because they're already largely human creations. That they bear very little resemblance to their wild ancestors, and they're generally not very competitive in the environment. So they don't go anywhere outside the fields. In fact, they need a lot of tending to even survive in the fields. So. I'm not worried about um, farmers using GMOs. I'm not so keen on uh, some of the projects that are out there to genetically engineer, you know, wild trees or corals or things like that. So I am, I'm, not, I'm not completely starry-eyed about genetic engineering to this day, um, but I think it's, it's obviously an important tool. Um, certainly it's, it's safe in terms of the, uh, the food supply and all of that stuff. Uh, there's a scientific consensus about that. And... I think it's it's one of the options which um, needs to be considered. But it, you, you do also need to consider people's uh, moral objections. And, you know, if you if you do that openly, you can say, OK, you have a moral objection to having a bacterial gene in, in maize, corn. Um, but do you also have a moral objection to people, um, you know, dying of starvation? And do you need to somehow trade off on those two things? Perhaps you need to overcome one moral objection in order to address the other. So at least then we're talking about um, realities rather than having sort of pseudoscientific um, debates about things that aren't that just aren't real. It's a very important point because what it does is it explains that there is a continuum of ways to think about this. And yesterday morning I was speaking with high school teachers and one of them said, well, what are the ethics of tinkering with DNA? And I said, you know, because I come from far on the other side of this, just with, with the way I think of this as a scientist, by saying, what are the ethics of not doing it? When you have an opportunity to solve a problem like for hunger or malnutrition or plant disease, and you have the tools but refuse to use them, you know, isn't there something there as well? And I think that when all of us who are in this ballgame of discussing and thinking about this really start to accept that others have opinions and feelings based upon their experiences that place them not in one camp or the other, but somewhere along this uh, rather sophisticated continuum, I think it really makes it easier for us to have meaningful conversations. That, that's true. And it would be nice to be in a place where we're not um, accusing others who, who, who disagree with us of, well, not only having ulterior motives, but being motivated by um, you, you know, um, just uh, emotionality or intuition, and so I, I think it's there's this kind. Of, there tends to be a false dichotomy between this idea that some people think like scientists and they're empirically driven, and whereas the kind of lump and mass out there are just motivated by emotions and they don't understand anything. Um, so I, I do kind of reject with that deficit model in the book. Um, I think all of us, including scientists, are entire, <laughs> entirely motivated by emotions. Uh, and we tend to select the evidence to um, support our sort of tribally motivated uh, um, conclusions. Uh, and and so, so there's a much broader debate about that. Um, and, and it's important not to be naive, really, about, um, about some of these, these kinds of scientific, supposedly scientific debates, because most of the time, 
science is used as a, a ball that gets battered backwards and forwards from one side to another, but it's not really what's going on. No, exactly. And it, it, that's really one of the things that I've learned over the last you know five or six years that really made me more, um, I think, effective in discussing this was uh, you know a lot of that same kind of idea. And when, when you were um, really starting to crack the door, feeling that, that maybe there was a change brewing in terms of your interpretation of this technology, what was it that was really motivating that shift and changing your mind? Well, you used the word courageous, um, describing very kindly, describing my um, change of heart. But actually, I don't think it was particularly courageous, and I'm not being false humility here. Um, it's just that I, I, I consciously resisted um, making that decision for a really long time. Um, so I first began to have doubts, or I had doubts pointed out to me, in like way back in like, I think it was 2008. Um, and it, there was many years, I mean, I resisted that and I tried to find evidence to go against it. And I really didn't want to have to make the kind of sacrifice <laughs> in terms of my sort of social network and everything else that I knew would be, you know, come by, by changing my mind. But, um, you know, ultimately, I, I had to make a difficult choice between being um true to my sort of friends and colleagues in the scientific community and true to my reputation as a science communicator uh, albeit on climate change largely in up to that point but you know i wanted to be somebody who was seen to get the science right i cared about my reputation um, and that ultimately outweighed the the need to stay true to the sort of uh, central the central ideologies of the of the environmental movement but that's because I'd sort of left the environmental movement as an activist and campaigner and become more of somebody who was, um, you know, working working with uh, as a science communicator primarily. So I was by that point in a safer place to to, to come out and speak in public. Um, I mean, you, I think you've had a tougher time than I have, and you didn't. It wasn't because you changed your mind. It was because you became publicly identified with this issue. Um, so there's there's many ways really that you can. Uh, that you you can have a tough time in a in some of these very polarized debates. Yeah, I think that it's uh, in your case a little bit different in that there's a certain kind of inertia to uh, changing one's mind. And we talked about this in talking biotech number one three years ago. Is what is it that finally allows you to step away from uh, a, a given line of thinking into something that you know seems at least uh, very opposed to what you were thinking? And what was interesting about your case from the book was the people who were there to help you after you came out with the uh, the change or the discussion with the change of heart, um, that Nina Fedorov, Mark Van Montague, other folks were, were those who were able to give you some other support and advice. And could you talk a little bit about that? Well, that was that was very helpful. I mean, at the real, at the hardest points after I made this um, speech about having changed my mind in 2013, you know, getting a, an email from Fedorov saying, you know, just saying, look, you're in a tough place, stick with it. You know, here's, here's what we scientists would like you would like to hear you saying and, and would like to do to support you. You know, so I felt, but that, in that way, I felt um, almost privileged to, to be given the opportunity to, to do, to do that job. But, you know, I was, I was also uh, aware that I didn't want to irrevocably lose friendships. And there's a, there's, there's places later on in the book where I actually go back and speak to um, some of my oldest friends, people who I was involved in the anti-GMO campaign with, and, and see where they're at, and try and I try my best to give them a, a fair hearing. Because 
uh, you know, in first in earlier drafts of the book, it was it was a bit more polemical, and I was sort of really sounding off and just well, you know, it wasn't quite a rant, but I mean, there was sort of there was anger there, and I think I've hopefully let go of that a bit, and because I don't think any of us learn by misunderstanding what our opponents are thinking and doing. Um, uh, and I don't think you can make any pro- any progress if you imagine that people who who oppose you are motivated by you know <laughs> evil um, deeds of some sort. So I, I you know so I, I there's quite lengthy passages where I go back and speak to you know Jim Thomas who was at first who was at Greenpeace initially and now at the uh, ETC group um, and uh, George Monbiot you know the environmental writer who's been a very long term friend of mine and Paul Kingsnorth who's a Sort of uh, has been a sort of dark ecologist, if you like, and and see where they are and try and really understand because I think it's important for for readers, particularly those who are sort of on the pro science side of these arguments, to to really get where 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 opponents are coming from. And couldn't agree more. Um, let's take a quick break and then we'll come back on the other side. We're discussing the book Seeds of Science with the author Mark Linus, and we'll be back with the Talking Biotech podcast right after this. Hi, Talking Biotechers. Episode 140 is important in that it emphasizes the importance of critically analyzing something very important, our own opinions. We form opinions and thoughts from the evidence we deem credible. Sadly, that tends to be the evidence that's already accepted from people we relate to, the folks in our trusted communities. You sometimes hear social scientists think of them as tribes. But in episode 140, I talked to Mark Linus about his new book, Seeds of Science, Now, Mark was not certain about technology to the point where he participated in actively stopping it. To his credit, he stepped back, looked at the data, and changed his mind. The good news is is that he sees technology with great nuance. He's no fan of companies and not even the rabid tech supporters, but he's a fan of technology that can help people or a planet. And this is the challenge to you. Listen to the podcast and challenge what you believe. Ask yourself honestly, what would it take to change my mind? And if confronted with that evidence, would I have the courage to change it? We live in strange times. I mean, the good news is that the way forward is easy. It's the truth. We need to test ourselves, challenge others, share beautiful stories, read seeds of science, critically evaluate Linus's claims, and share your thoughts on his thinking. The bottom line is is that we have to constantly test ourselves for self-delusion and ensure that we are objectively thinking about data. Don't be anti-GMO, pro-GMO, be pro-science. Get excited about rigorous tests of claims and share that information. And read Mark's book, and and for what it's worth, I bought mine online and I'm not being paid off by (laughs) Big Linus. I just thought that I appreciated his sophisticated discussion of a topic that is immediately polarizing and polluted by mistrust. If we can talk to each other and, well, talk to ourselves about challenging our beliefs, maybe that's the best way to have a productive discussion and get this technology out to those who can benefit from it. And we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast today discussing the new book, Seeds of Science, with author Mark Linus. And Mark, um, we were discussing before about the time of change and some of the things that happens when you create change, the relationships that become strained. 
But later in the book, you also talk about the idea of the the movement itself and anti-GMO. You know, what are some of the things that it did well and what are some of its uh, aspects that were consistent with environmentalism? And, and, and uh, you know, what, what can we say about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I struggled with that initially because I didn't really want to write a chapter about what, what the opposition got right, which is, I think, how I titled it. Um, but I, I, I wanted to... To, to try to understand really why there might be objections to, to technologies uh, and w- why these might be both uh, relevant and important objections to, ha- to have aired. Um, because there are, you know, there are limits to, to how far you would want humans to intrude in, um, in, in DNA of natural species and so on. Um, and, you know, there needs to be a, an honest debate about what those limits might be. Um, and, a, and a debate also about the trade-offs, like you said earlier. If you don't genetically engineer rice to express uh, <laughs> uh, beta-carotene, then you have deprived yourself of a tool potentially of dealing with vitamin A deficiency in in, in children in poorer country poorer countries. Um, maybe that's a sacrifice you wish to make because you're against the use of this technology for for various other reasons. But again, let's let's have this open and let's have this uh, explicit. I also I can't remember whether it's that chapter, but I was also quite critical, really, looking historically at how Monsanto handled the initial rollout with their choice of uh, Roundup Ready as the as the first trait, um, because I think that's indelibly linked GMOs with pesticides. Um, and, of course, you've got the whole glyphosate debate, which has really erupted in the activist scene in the last couple of years. Um, and and, and so that, that's been a way, really, for the anti-GMO crowd to firmly keep this idea this meme going that gmos equals pesticides pesticides equals gmos it's all about big uh, chemicals companies selling more pesticides and which is something that is still very widely believed in uh, you know out there amongst the, the general public um and i think uh, you know that really does come down to monsanto's decision back in 1996 to lead with roundup ready rather than bt because if, if it had been bt then you know, you'd have had insect resistant crops and they could have said, look, this is this is reducing insecticide sprays by farmers. Isn't, isn't that worth worth having? Whereas Roundup Ready had no, you know, not only did it have no benefits for consumers that they could perceive, but it made people think, well, you know, my complex are being sprayed with weed killers. And it's all being done to benefit this um, company that used to make Agent Orange. So, you know, you could see why it was an absolute open goal for, for activists to kick the ball through. And quite to the flip side of that, the same BT technology has now been implemented very well in the brinjal or the eggplant in places like Bangladesh. That's also covered in your book. But could you cover a little bit about that and how, you know, how do you see that as a step forward in the way that this technology may be eventually more acceptable? Well, I mean, if you wind the clock back a little bit more um, and look at how BT cotton was deployed in India, uh, the you know the environmental activists managed to link that with pesticide increases, even though this trait of insect resistance it was was there and basically its only value was so that farmers could spray less insecticide, and yet Vandana Shiva and, and and her ilk managed to sow this 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 narrative really establishes narrative of farmers being now hooked on pesticides they're swallowing pesticide they've got to spend more money on pesticides da, 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 which is the precise opposite of what was actually happening in the field. Um, and so I was aware because I was involved with Cornell and uh, USAID at the early stages of the, um, the you know, BT Brinjal being offered to Bangladeshi farmers that this was a really important sort of test case or at least an, 
an opportunity to not get the communications wrong again and not let the antis run away with the narrative. Um, so, you know, we did spend a lot of time in the field with farmers trying to get their perspectives out and trying to, you know, try, trying to get the story out that this was a way to reduce farmers spraying pesticides and, and how that was potentially important both for farmers' health, for their bottom line and for the environment. And you also talk about other uh possibilities on the African continent, and it's a significant portion, at least of, uh, of one chapter, and uh, really talk about some of the potential benefits there and the politics. And, and really what the thing that was really disturbing was the degree of activism on the ground from something like Action Aid that in places like Uganda are actively stopping technology developed by Ugandans from reaching Ugandan farmers. And can you tell us a little bit about that uh, type of activism that's home, well, or maybe coming from the EU and USA to influence decisions in the African continent. Well, when you put it like that, of course, it sounds terrible. I mean, you think, well, why would ActionAid be trying to deprive African farmers of better seeds that it could improve their livelihoods? But of course, they don't see it that way. And so you've got you've got a collision of uh, not just perspectives on this issue, but of entire worldviews, really. You know, do you have a sort of techno-optimist vision that um, subsistence African farmers could benefit from innovations, particularly those that have been developed abroad, um, whether they're genetic or, or anything else, really? Or do you have a worldview that African farmers need to be protected from rapacious, money-grabbing foreigners, you know, who are trying to impose some kind of new colonialism, whether it's capitalist or, or, or something else, whether it's multinational companies coming in there. And, and there's all that suspicion, you know, if, if genetic engineering is happening, then Monsanto will be coming in, they'll be stealing farmers' seeds and patenting them, and farmers will be deprived of their livelihoods thereby. And that's what um, ActionAid and, and all of the NGOs believe. You know, they believe that agroecology and, uh, and seed saving and small-scale um, uh, you know, more traditional farming is is, is the answer for these uh, African farmers, which is just as much an outside perspective, by and large. Actually, I mean, the it's not like the idea of organic farming was originated in Africa. Um, so you've got, in some ways, you've got these competing <laughs> um, foreign narratives um, try, battling it out, really, to to see which one uh, wins in in, in Africa. Um, and again, I wanted to to try to do justice to that debate. Um, you know, I'm, I'm quite clearly on one side of it now, but I was on the other side before um, and, and try to understand and, and to hear really how the debate plays out with with Africans doing most of the talking. Um, so that's that's really how I how I tried to, to write that chapter. Because it is really intriguing. I, I always come to the table with these things thinking, well, maybe people are maybe everyone's both right and that there are um technology applications that could serve people very well and we should be sensitive to the ideas of colonial pasts and uh and an infringement upon the rights of folks in other sovereign nations especially the poor and i and i learn a lot of this from you i mean i learn a lot from you listening to you and it become very sensitive to that and i and this is where this whole discussion has to have much more nuance than we're getting and if we were to um really look at how this is working going forward and you know in your last chapter 20 years of failure you know how how does it tie in with the way that maybe the anti-movement can tailor its thinking and maybe the folks who are on the side of technology what can we do a little bit better to um, make the communication on this a little less polarized well i think that's the that's the challenge really um, and I come to this as somebody who's spent, um, well, a decade campaigning on climate change, 
which became extremely polarized, uh, politically polarized, particularly in the United States, to, to the extent that it's that it's become a problem which is almost impossible to solve, um, or at least to solve through conventional democratic po- political means. Um, and that's you know that's not just a huge shame; it, it also means that we can't um, save the planet as effectively as we might have done had we not seen such such deep uh, polarization. And, you know, fortunately on the GMO issue, it's not as politically polarized. It hasn't just got caught up in, the, the, you know, the culture wars um, in, in the U.S. as much. But there's elements of that there. I mean, like I like I found, you know, the the reviews of Seeds of Science have been more, much more positive in the right wing media. Um, the, you know, the Wall Street Journal piece I had in recently, uh, most of the correspondence was, you know, we agree with you on GMOs, but why are you still pushing this uh, failed climate change narrative? You know, <laughs> so just the flip side of what I was campaigning against before, and it's 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 quite depressing that people really can only have one one or the other um, perspective. There's no, you know, nobody seems to be able to have a okay. Let's look at the science on this, and maybe that's just the world we're living in. But um, I think it's that those of us who you know, uh, are across these different areas and do our best to try to understand the science, what the state of the science is on both climate change and genetic engineering and some of these other controversies, um, need to get out there and communicate it because there's a lot of people out there who are ideologically very determined and have, don't have really much interest in what the scientists are actually saying and <laughs> what the facts are of the issue. And I guess that really ties in with the really last question is, if this is a question where the science looks really good on, say, climate and GE crops, what do we do as people who are either scientists or folks who are science enthusiasts or people who really see the value in technology of making a dis- difference for people and a planet? What can we do better? Well, I think, I think we have to, to bring other people around to, to our worldview, uh, which is, in my mind, it's a progressive worldview. It's, uh, you know, I, I consider myself a supporter of humanitarian uh, democratic values both with a capital and a small d by the way um you know i, I believe in um in in power to the people um I, I don't believe in well either corporate control or in autocracy uh, i'm extremely concerned about um you know the, the apparent backsliding of democracy in many parts of the world and i see this as actually as part of a wider wider struggle that we're that we're all engaged in i mean it's no surprise that the that the Russians have been pushing anti-GMO stuff so strongly on the internet because they're trying to undermine trust uh, and to corrode people's um, trust in, in in institutions, if you like, or at least in democratic institutions. So I don't know. I see this as a a, a broader defence of Enlightenment values, really, uh, of which you know belief in the scientific method and is a part, but also belief in progress, the idea that we can solve problems using using human ingenuity and technology and that we can make the world a better place. That, you know, too many people these days are just going with conspiracy theories and imagining that there's somebody out there to get you and that everyone's evil and that, you know, they don't see enough, enough good in the world. Um, and so, yeah, I, I'm a progressive and that's what I'm fighting for. And um, ultimately, I think science is one of the best tools we've got, and, and we shouldn't uh, shouldn't ignore it. And one of the places where you've had a lot of impacts, Mark, was with Alliance for Science and what's happening at Cornell. And can you tell us a little bit more about that program? 
Yeah, so uh, we started um, the Cornell Alliance for Science in uh, in 2014, so fairly early on, uh, with um, some kind support from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And for me, it's just been it's just just been such a inspiring, transformative experience, really, to work with a you know such a high caliber academic institution, um, primarily in developing countries, and a lot of it's been been training work, really. Uh, working with uh, communicators and people who are who are defending science in in Africa and Asia and elsewhere. Um, one of the things we we did in the last uh, couple of years was work on the March for Science and get March for Science um, rallies going. Uh, you know, in, in Uganda and in Nigeria and all sorts of places where they weren't previously being held. So, because you know, science is a is a global value, and um, I think that's such an important thing. And so, I'd encourage anyone who who wants to be a science ally and to join to join that movement to to go on the website at uh, Cornell Alliance for Science and um, and join up. Um, there's so much we can do, and if we if we work together, we can change the world um, for the better. Very good. And if people wanted to learn more about you or follow you on social media, where would they do that? Well, I'm quite twittery, so I'm Mark underscore Linus is my Twitter handle, and. Um, uh, other than that, um, uh, yeah, <laughs> give, give the book a shot. See if you can get through it without being sent to sleep. <laughs> a great endorsement, right? <laughs> no, yeah, thank, right. Uh, well, thank you very much for joining me today on Talking Biotech Podcast, and uh, and uh, hope to see you pretty soon at the conference somewhere. Okay, thanks, Kevin. And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Write a review on iTunes. Um, or, or don't. <laughs> no, it really helps us because they look really good. And I think we have almost all five stars except for one person who gave us three for some reason. But uh, definitely, I think it helps people when they're making their tough decisions between different scientific podcasts, which ones they want to follow. And so it's really helpful to have more good reviews. Uh, Actually, our numbers in this podcast have gone down a little, and I don't think it's because of the guests or the <laughs> hosts. Maybe it is, but I think it has gone down simply because um, there's more content to choose from and more excellent quality podcasts that are out there, especially in the area of science. So your reviews really do matter. Thank you very much for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech. Sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.